Lachlan Trust, each relationship matters, and we know that your relationship with money may be complicated and may need some extra love and attention. But where do you start? I'm Julie Beckham, the Financial Education Officer at Rockland Trust, and this is the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. What you should have done and could have done, didn't know and should have known, doesn't matter anymore. There's no use spending one more minute blaming or shaming yourself. Because really, with everything going on in the world right now, you don't have time to get down on yourself. And you don't deserve it. We're all in this together, starting now. And like I said, there's no shame in this money game. Welcome to the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. Well, folks, it's about that time, and I'm talking about tax time. Today, we're here with Steve Guerin, who's been in the tax business for more than 20 years. He's a certified public accountant, and today we're going to talk to him about taxes. Well, welcome, Steve. I am so excited to have you on the No Shame in This Money Game podcast as we're talking about taxes. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yes. So taxes, death and taxes, they're actually best friends, I hear. (laughs) Those are the two things we can't change that we're told. Is it really that bad? Equating taxes with death is a little grim. So I asked Stephen a question about what he liked about being an accountant in general, and I was surprised and really engaged by what he had to say. I think you will be too. So before we get lost in the numbers, here's a little more from Stephen. I think that most people think that an accountant is a guy who, or a girl who has a, uh, a shade on with a green lamp and an abacus, which I do have. <laughs> I call it my abracadabracus, but I don't use it. But I think they think of it as a boring, number-crunching job. Taxes really aren't necessarily about numbers as much as they're about law. What can you deduct? And what is considered income? Who's considered a dependent? These are all things that are based in law. And you have to read the tax code in order to determine those things. So it's actually a lot different than what people think. It's not just grabbing some numbers off a piece of paper and plugging them into the computer. It's determining what people are able to do and and whatnot. But the best part about my job, the part that makes it so not boring is that I get to talk to people from all different walks of life, dealing with all different difficulties and, and, and changes in their lives. A lot of people come to me when they, a spouse has died or when a major event has happened in their lives. And they're coming to me, they're talking to me about those issues that they're facing and these issues that they're dealing with. And I'm able to explain and work through those things and help them in a, in a concrete way. And I'm learning about all these people and all of these, these different professions and all these different things to do with their lives. And I, I learn their children, I learn their grandchildren, and they become part of my family. So I feel Like I'm one of the luckiest men on the face of the earth because I'm able to work with so many diverse people that come into my office. They bear themselves to me because when you're talking about your money, you're talking about everything. Right. And I think that they tell me more than anybody other than their priest, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I think in a lot of cases they tell me more than they tell me. (laughs) Maybe more. 
Okay, now that we know who we're talking to and that this is about more than numbers, let's get down to business. Stephen, who has to file taxes? So if you have income federally, if you have income of more than $12,400 and you're under 65 years old, then you have to file taxes. If you're over 65 years old, an additional $1,650 gets added to that. So it's $14,050. If you're married, Those numbers are pretty much doubled. It's a little bit different. So if you have a child and they have a job, a summer job, when do you know if they have to file taxes? So if a kid is working, a child is working, and they're a dependent of you, then they have the same rules as you do, except if they have unearned income, which would most likely be dividends, interest, capital gains, something like that, if they have a small investment account or something like that. If they have unearned income of more than $1,100, they have to file no matter what their income level is if they're a dependent. If they're not a dependent of you, then they have the same rules that you do. And this is just for the federal taxes. What about in the state of Massachusetts? Correct. Yes. So Massachusetts is different. Massachusetts, everybody has an exemption of $4,400. So if you're married, it's $8,800. Kids also have the same exact exemptions for, for them. So it's $4,400. If you're over 65, then uh, you get an additional 700 per person. So if you're over 65 and single, it's $5,100. If you're over, if both of you are over 65 and married, it would be $10,200. Okay. So I can tell already that some of our listeners are fascinated with these numbers and want to try to do this by themselves. And then some are ready to outsource (laughs) because the numbers (laughs) already are a bit overwhelming. What's some advice you can give someone who actually does want to file their taxes themselves and how do they go about doing that? Good question. So most people's taxes are not particularly complicated to do. Obviously, they're going to be complicated for you if you don't understand them. And like you said, nobody teaches this. It's one of the biggest failures of our educational system that we're not teaching these basic money skills like filing taxes. If you'd like to learn more about where Massachusetts stands on requiring personal finance classes in its K-12 curriculum, be sure to listen to the No Shame in This Money Game Season 1, Podcast 7, where we address financial education in Massachusetts. So... If you wanted to file your taxes on your own, there are several different options to do that. The IRS and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts really don't want you to do it by hand. They don't want you to mail it to them. They want you to file electronically. So there are, I mean, you can, but they don't like that. So there are a couple of different options. The IRS has an app on their website, which is www.irs.gov. If you earn under $72,000, and there's a couple of other things in there, you're able to file for free your your taxes and electronically file it directly with the IRS. Massachusetts similarly has something on their website, which I don't know off the top of my head because it's longer, <laughs> that you are able to file for free and electronically file. If you 
don't qualify. There's a lot of different tax software out there, like TurboTax, which is probably the one that most people have heard of, that you can buy for relatively inexpensive money, and you can file your taxes yourself. However, that requires you to have some understanding of what it is that you need. And a lot of people just don't even really know what they need. Everybody always comes to me and tells me that their taxes are really complicated. And most people are wrong. Most people's taxes are not complicated, but they're complicated to them. So they are complicated. So if you look at your tax forms and say, I don't understand this, then you probably shouldn't be filing on your own, even with the aid of something like TurboTax. TurboTax and most of those softwares, Tax Slayer, Tax Act, there's a bunch of different ones. They're an interview style. So when you go in there, it will ask you questions. So it could most likely lead you to where you need to be. But if you don't know what it's supposed to look like at the end, then the old computer phrase of garbage in, garbage out. If you don't know what you're putting on there, you don't know what it's supposed to look like at the end, you have no idea if you did it correctly. Right. And then what if you make a mistake? I mean, if it's your first time doing this and and you, you just mess up, what happens then? So there's a lot of different remedies for that. You can amend a tax return. So if you leave something out or you put something in the incorrect place, then you can amend the tax return. For those who need assistance filing taxes but feel like hiring an accountant may not be the best financial option, there are many volunteer income tax assistance sites throughout the state that might be able to help you. People call these VITA sites. You can find VITA sites through the Massachusetts Association for Community Action, masscap.org, or through the Boston Tax Help Coalition at bostontaxhelp.org. So if you make a mistake, you'll be told you made a mistake and, and, and there won't necessarily be giant penalties on your first mistake. If it was, you know, just an honest mistake, you'll have an opportunity to amend. Correct. And both the IRS and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts are actually pretty good about waiving penalties if you have made an honest mistake and you haven't made that same mistake every year. What are the warning signs that maybe you shouldn't be filing your taxes on your own? The warning sign that you need a professional is that you don't understand what you're doing. We all need help with basic tasks in life. I don't change the oil in my car, not because I can't understand how to change the oil in my car or that it's just too complicated for me to figure out. It's convenience, ease, and just what I'm more capable of doing in my everyday life. It's not something that I have set up in my house to to change the oil in my car. I think that a lot of us feel like we should know how to do our taxes. It's like a threshold you should have crossed over into adulthood. And so there is a little bit of shame in this and not doing it yourself or not feeling comfortable. But when you talk about changing the oil in your car, it's just another thing to outsource, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, nobody should ever feel shame in not knowing how to do their taxes. You're not taught it. So We don't know things that we're not taught. We don't know things that nobody has sat down and given us the opportunity to do. I didn't know how to file my taxes until I started filing my taxes. When Actually, when I first got married, my wife filed our taxes. I wasn't an accountant back then, and she filed our taxes. So there's no shame in not knowing how to do something that you don't know how to do.
Right. And I mean, the list goes on about the things that we we do outsource from, you know, sometimes doing our laundry and sometimes, you know, cleaning our houses. Yes. Snow removal, all the things. It, and, it, <laughs> you know, so you, there's a list of them and, th- and taxes are important and, and, and hiring a professional might be the right choice. And there is no shame in that. Okay. So let's talk about status. Now it feels like married single, that should be pretty easy, but it's more complicated than that, and actually it feels a little bit confusing. If you're married, you could either be married filing jointly or married filing separately. And actually there is a third option on occasion where you could potentially be a head of household, which we're going to get to in a second. If you're single, you're not married, you're single. Great. <laughs> but, but if you have kids, now maybe you're head of household. <laughs> I'm feeling very validated by thinking this status question was confusing. I mean, just because something seems like it should be simple doesn't mean it is. Remember that next time you're hard on yourself for not knowing something. So head of household, generally you have to be single. You have to pay for more than half the cost of keeping up the house. And you have to have either a qualifying child or a qualifying relative But some of those qualifying relatives that I listed before are excluded from that. It's kind of a complicated thing. So you have to, if if it's just your your kid, you're good. Right. If you're using a relative, you might want to look it up and talk to somebody. So that might be one of the warning signs that you seek a professional. That would definitely be a warning sign. Absolutely. Because that that could get, get a little bit, a little more difficult to figure out. You don't want to do that wrong. I mean, if you do it wrong, then you can fix it. Everything's fixable. Taxes taxes are not the end of the world. It's just a bunch of numbers. You're putting it down. We're paying the government our share. If you do make a mistake, you fix it. That's that's it. Well, that sounds good. <laughs> that's hopeful. <laughs> it's it, it's really hard to, you know, to take a step back and realize that something involving your finances, something involving rules that you don't think about every day, it's hard to think that those things are fixable. Right. But they are. They are. There's actually one other tax status that we didn't touch on, and that is a qualifying widow or widower. I just wanted to touch on that really quickly. What that is a lot of my older clients think that they should fall into that, but you have to have a qualifying child living with you in order to be able to be a qualifying widow. Okay. So if you're 80 years old and your spouse has died, you're not a qualifying widow unless you have a minor child living with you. So Webster's dictionary definition of a widow is different than the IRS's. Exactly. That's a question that I get asked occasionally. Okay, we're moving on because we have so much to cover. Let's talk about tax credits, deductions, exemptions. Can you talk about these terms? So exemptions have pretty much gone off the board. Back in 2017, in December of 2017, the tax law that got passed eliminated exemptions from the federal tax code. And what that used to be was it was an amount of money that was exempt from tax. And what they did instead was they increased the standard deduction. 
For a single person under the age of 65, the standard deduction is $12,400. This is the amount of money the government gives you to deduct off of your actual income. Itemized deductions are all those things you are allowed by the tax law to deduct, such as mortgage interests, state and local taxes up to a certain amount, charitable contributions. If you add those numbers up and it's more than $12,400, you can itemize your deduction. But since the 2017 tax reform, the majority of Americans take the standard deduction because it's more beneficial to them. But if you still have questions about this, there are CPAs like Stephen who can advise you on your own personal situation. A deduction, I'm going to define deduction versus credit. So a deduction reduces the amount of income that is taxable to you. So if you have $20,000 of income and you have a $10,000 deduction, then you're only taxed on the remaining $10,000. A credit is a reduction in the amount of tax you need to pay. So in that same scenario, if you had $20,000 of income, but you had a $10,000 credit, well, that credit is going to be way bigger than the tax that you have to pay. So a smaller credit is actually usually better for you than a bigger deduction. So when you hear the child tax credit, which is probably the most common credit that people receive, that was increased to $2,000. That's literally $2,000 less in tax you have to pay. If it was a $2,000 deduction, it would be 2000 off of the amount of income that gets taxed, which is not worth nearly as much as literally reducing your tax. Right. Okay, this is making sense. So if exemptions are gone and there's no more 0, 1, 2 to fill out on my W-4 anymore, how do I know that I'm going to get the right amount of taxes coming out of my paycheck every week so that I don't owe money after I file? The thing that people need to know now, it asks you, are you single? Are you married? Are you head of household? So it's actually single or married filing separately is one thing. Married filing jointly or a qualifying widow is a different checkbox. And head of household would be the third checkbox. You check that box, whichever one applies to you. Then there's a couple of other steps in there. If you have multiple jobs or your spouse works, there's all of these complex questions and the instructions, you know, put this number here, put that number there, and then it's going to work your way down to a number, a dollar number, rather than a number of exemptions. It also asks if you have other income, not from your job. So if you have interest in dividend income and things like that, what kind of deductions you have. I tell people, don't worry about all that stuff. Ignore all that stuff. Check your box. And then when we do your taxes, if you get a lot of money back, then we can adjust it. If you owe more money than you want to be owing, we can adjust it. Because the last thing that you're able to do is extra withholding. You can withhold more per week or per, per, per pay period. So if you typically owe $1,000 and you don't want to owe $1,000, you can have an extra $20 per week taken out. And there's your $1,000. Okay. So that's the easier in what makes more sense to people than trying to fill out this whole form that is more complex than it needs to be. 
One other thing about the W-4 that's really important, you mentioned earlier kids. So if you have a child who's working a summer job or even a first job, but they're not making a lot of money, or even a retiree who's just working a you know one day a week or something like that or whatever. If you make under that $12,400, you actually have to write it in on the form. And if you look at the instruction, it tells you where to write it. You can write exempt. And what that does is it makes you exempt for withholding. That doesn't mean that you don't have to pay taxes. If you earn more than that, than that $12,400, you might still owe taxes. But for like a, a, a young child who's going to make four or $5,000 at the most over the course of the summer, they probably don't even have a filing requirement. If they don't put exempt on the form, they'll have money withheld from their paycheck. So they have to file in order to get that money back. Okay. So you'd much rather put exempt and even if you end up owing a little bit of money, it's better than having to file to get all that money back that you didn't need to have withheld. Okay, what about tax brackets? It seems you hear a lot of people say at tax time, I hope I didn't get into the next tax bracket. Can you explain tax brackets? Oh, yes. Thank you so much for asking me about that. This is absolutely the most misunderstood part of our tax code. And I deal with it all the time, and it amazes me that we're not taught this, that people just don't understand this. And I get asked probably 10 or 20 times a year, and watching the jaw drop of the people as I'm explaining to them how it works, it's mind-boggling to me that nobody understands this, because we're not taught it. It's not your fault for not understanding it. But it's amazing that we are all under this tax system and people just don't get it. So what I'm asked all the time is, what tax bracket am I in? Because if I, I, if I go up to the next tax bracket, I'm going to pay more in tax, so it's, it's better to not even get that raise. Or I'm thinking about maybe changing jobs, but I think it might put me into a new tax bracket, so I don't even know if I want to change jobs. I'm here to tell you, it's always better to make more money. <laughs> always. <laughs> But how the tax brackets work, we have a graduated tax system. The first few tax brackets are the 10% bracket, the 12% bracket, the 22%, and then the 24 So people think that if they go from the 12% to the 22%, that they're automatically going to pay 10% more, 22 minus 12, 10%, more on all of their earnings. But that's not what happens. So... We have to kind of go in reverse a little bit and talk a little bit about what is taxable income. Your taxable income is the money that you make that is taxable minus your deductions and minus, well, not not minus credits because credits would come off of the amount of tax. So minus your deductions. So let's, I, I used a, a number before. Let's say all you have, you're single, you make $62,400. You get a standard deduction of $12,400, so you have taxable income of $50,000. The 10% tax bracket goes up to, this goes from zero to 9875 Let's use 10000 just to be easy. So your first $10,000 gets taxed at 10%. 
everybody's first $10,000 gets taxed at 10%. Not if you're if you're in the 22% bracket, it doesn't matter. Your first $10,000 gets taxed at 10%. Then the next tax bracket, the 12% bracket, goes up to $40,125. But let's just use 40,000 to make it easy. So we went from 10,000 to 40,000. So the next $30,000 that you earned gets taxed at 12%. No matter how much money you make, everybody, it's the same thing. Your first 10,000 is taxed at 10%. Your next 30,000 gets taxed at 12%. Then the next $10,000 gets taxed at that 22%. You're now in the 22% tax bracket, but only 10,000 of that is getting taxed at 22%. The first 10,000 at 10, the next 30 is at 12, the next 10 is at 22. And what that number is, it's called the marginal tax rate. The next dollar, how much the next dollar will get taxed at is your marginal tax rate. So the 24% tax bracket starts at 85,000. $525. So let's just say $85,000. So we went from 40000 to 85000 So if you make $85,526, only $1 gets taxed at 24%. Mm-hmm. The other 45, that, et cetera, goes, it goes back, you know, back in there. So going up to a higher tax bracket, you would be in the 24% bracket, but you're only paying a dollar at 24% and everything else is at lower tax brackets. So it's very important to think of that. When you're asking that question, you're, you're kind of asking a question that doesn't, doesn't matter. Right. So, I mean, people make a big deal like, oh, I don't want to be in the higher tax bracket or like this might push me into a higher bracket. It matters, obviously. That portion of your money gets taxed at that amount. But when it all comes out in the wash, it's not that big of a deal. Right, exactly, exactly. And we've been using the single numbers, married numbers at the lower tax brackets are double. Wow. Stephen, I think everyone listening today will be able to say with no doubt that they learned something new. Now, you do know that there is a gaming aspect to the no shame in this money game. So I'm going to spin my spinning wheel here and ask you a random question. What is something people believe to be true about taxes that is actually not true? The biggest misconception that I have, other than the tax brackets, is when you sell your primary residence. For some reason, and I don't understand why it has lasted this long, people think that when they sell their house, their, their primary residence, that they have to reinvest that money. Now, I don't remember what year that law changed. But the law changed back in, I believe, the early 90s. And what the law is now is if you sell your primary residence that you've lived in at least two out of the last five years, you have a $250,000 exemption from gain. And what that means is if you bought the house for $250,000 and you sold it for $500,000, you do not have to pay any tax because the difference the 500000 minus the two hundred fifty is $250,000. You don't have to pay any tax on it. It doesn't matter what you do with that money. You can take that money and go to Vegas with it. <laughs> you can do anything you want with that money. You don't have to pay tax on it. The law used to be, 
if you reinvested it into a primary residence, then you didn't have to pay tax. That hasn't been the law for 30 years. Wow. But I get asked that all the time, all the time. And by the way, that's doubled if you're married. So it's a $500,000 exemption from gain if you're married. So most people who sell their primary residence don't have to pay tax on it. Well, this has been an awesome interview. And with my last question, because Rockland Trust is the bank where each relationship matters, what is one word that can describe your relationship with money? For that, I would say money is a tool. What I mean by that is money is not an end in and of itself. Money is like a hammer. It's something that you need to do a job. It's something that you need to do the different things that that we do in our lives. But so many people are obsessed with their money and they're so consumed by their money. And I don't think that that's a healthy relationship. I think that the relationship that you should have with money is that it's something that you use to get the things that you want or that you need. Obviously, we all need a certain amount of money in order to be able to eat and to be clothed and to be housed and and whatnot. But it's not something that we should hold tightly on to. It's just a tool to get us to where we want to be, which is to be with our families and our friends and, and to have good experiences and relationships in our lives. It's not about the money. It's about the ride along the way and the relationships we build and the people that we meet. And there, there isn't one person that sits on their deathbed and says, boy, I wish I worked more. So using money just as a tool, it's just something that we, we need. But you know, it's hard to hammer a nail without a hammer. And it's hard to buy food without money. But I think it's really important that we don't idolize money, put it somewhere, place where it doesn't belong. It's just something that we use to to get the things that we want. Well, thank you so much, Steve. This honestly has been so great, eye-opening in many ways. And I think if we haven't tackled our our taxes yet, we know whether or not we want to try it or seek a professional. And we totally appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much. You are most welcome. I very much enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to the No Shame in This Money Game podcast brought to you by Rockland Trust, member FDIC. My name is Julie Beckham, and yes, I do take requests. So be sure to email your personal finance questions and curiosities to me, your host and your educator at julie.beckham at rocklandtrust.com.